Chapter One Introduction to A Jewish State by Theodore Herzl, translated by Sylvie Avigdor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter One Introduction It is astonishing how little insight many of the men who move in the midst of active life possess of the science of economics. Hence it is that even Jews faithfully repeat the cry of the anti-Semites. We depend for sustenance on the nations whose guests we are, and if we had not hosts to support us, we should die of starvation. This is a point that shows how greatly unjust accusations may weaken our self-knowledge. But what are the true grounds for this statement concerning the nations which take us in? Where it is not based on limited physiocratic views, it is founded on the childish error that commodities pass from hand to hand in continuous rotation. We need not wake from long slumber, like Rip Van Winkle, to realise that the world is considerably altered by the production of new commodities. The technical progress made during this wonderful era enables even a man of most limited intelligence to note with his short-sighted eyes the appearance of innumerable new commodities. The spirit of enterprise has created them. Labour without enterprise is the stationary labour of ancient days, and typical of it is the work of the husbandman, who stands now just where his progenitors stood a thousand years ago. All our material welfare has been brought about by men of enterprise. I feel almost ashamed of writing down so trite a remark. Even if we were a nation of promoters, such as absurdly exaggerated accounts make us out to be, we should not require another nation to live on. We do not depend only on the circulation of old commodities, because we produce new ones. We possess slaves of extraordinary strength for work, whose appearance in the world has been fatal to the production of handmade goods. These slaves are the machines. It is true that workmen are required to set machinery in motion, but for this we have men in plenty, in superabundance. Only those who are ignorant of the condition of Jews in the many countries of Eastern Europe would venture to assert that Jews are either unfit or unwilling to perform manual labour. But I do not wish to take up the cudgels for the Jews in this pamphlet. It would be useless. Everything rational and everything sentimental that can possibly be said in their defence has been said already. New arguments in favour of a certain condition of mind or of feeling answer no purpose. If one's hearers are incapable of comprehending them, one is a preacher in a desert, and if one's hearers are broad and high-minded enough to have grasped them already, then the whole sermon is superfluous. I believe in the ascent of man to higher and yet higher grades of civilization, but I consider this ascent to be desperately slow. Were we to wait till average humanity had become as charitably inclined as it was when Lessing wrote Nathan the Wise, 
we should wait beyond our day, beyond the days of our children, of our grandchildren, and of our great-grandchildren. But the world spirit comes to our aid in another way. This century has given the world a wonderful renaissance by means of its technical acquisitions. But at the same time, its miraculous improvements have not been employed in the service of humanity. Distance has ceased to be an obstacle, yet we complain of insufficient space. Our great steamships carry us swiftly and surely over hitherto unvisited seas. Our railways carry us safely into a mountain world heretofore tremblingly scaled on foot. Events occurring in countries undiscovered when Europe confined the Jews in ghettos are known to us in the course of an hour. Hence the misery of the Jews is an anachronism, not because there was a period of enlightenment one hundred years ago, for that enlightenment reached in reality only the choicest spirits. Now, I am of opinion that electric light was not invented for the purpose of illuminating the drawing-rooms of a few snobs, but rather for the purpose of throwing light on some of the dark problems of humanity. One of these problems, and not the least of them, is the Jewish question. In solving it we are working not only for ourselves, but for many other overburdened and oppressed beings also. The Jewish question still exists. It would be useless to deny it. It is a remnant of the Middle Ages which civilized nations do not even yet seem to be able to shake off, try as they will. They certainly showed a generous desire to do so when they emancipated us. The Jewish question exists wherever Jews live in perceptible numbers. Where it does not exist, it is carried by Jews in the course of their migrations. We naturally move to those places where we are not persecuted, and there our presence produces persecution. This is the case in every country, and will remain so, even in those most highly civilized, France itself being no exception, till the Jewish question finds a solution on a political basis. The unfortunate Jews are now carrying anti-Semitism into England. They have already introduced it into America. I believe that I understand anti-Semitism, which is really a highly complex movement. I consider it from a Jewish standpoint, yet without fear or hatred. I believe that I can see what elements there are in it of vulgar sport, of common trade jealousy, of inherited prejudice of religious intolerance, and also of pretended self-defence. I think the Jewish question is no more a social than a religious one, notwithstanding that it sometimes takes these and other forms. It is a national question, which can only be solved by making it a political world question, to be discussed and controlled by the civilised nations of the world in council. We are a people one people. We have honestly endeavoured everywhere to merge ourselves into the social life of surrounding communities, and to preserve only the faith of our fathers. It has not been permitted to us. In vain we are loyal patriots, our loyalty in some places running to extremes. 
In vain do we make the same sacrifices of life and property as our fellow-citizens. In vain do we strive to increase the fame of our native land in science and art, or her wealth by trade and commerce. In countries where we have lived for centuries we are still cried down as strangers, and often by those whose ancestors were not yet domiciled in the land where Jews had already made experience of suffering. The majority may decide which are the strangers. For this, as indeed every point which arises in the commerce of nations, is a question of might. I do not here surrender any portion of our prescriptive right, for I am making this statement merely in my own name as an individual. In the world of today, and for an indefinite period, it will probably remain so. Might precedes right. Therefore it is useless for us to be loyal patriots, as were the Huguenots who were forced to emigrate. If we could only be left in peace. But I think we shall not be left in peace. Oppression and persecution cannot exterminate us. No nation on earth has survived such struggles and sufferings as we have gone through. Jew-baiting has merely stripped off our weaklings. The strong among us were invariably true to their race when persecution broke out against them. This attitude was most clearly apparent in the period immediately following the emancipation of the Jews. Later on, those who rose to a higher degree of intelligence and to a better worldly position lost their communal feeling to a very great extent. Wherever our political well-being has lasted for any length of time, we have assimilated with our surroundings. I think this is not discreditable. Hence the statesman who would wish to see a Jewish strain in his nation would have to provide for the duration of our political well-being, and even Bismarck could not do that. For old prejudice against us still lies deep in the hearts of the people. He who would have proofs of it need only listen to the people where they speak with frankness and simplicity. Proverb and fairy tale are both anti-Semitic. A nation is a great child, which can certainly be educated, but its education would, even in the most favourable circumstances, occupy such a vast amount of time that we could, as already mentioned, remove our own difficulties by other means long before the process was accomplished. Assimilation, which implies, in addition to external conformity in dress, habits, customs, and language, identity also of feeling and manner, assimilation of Jews could only be effected by intermarriage. But the need for mixed marriages would have to be felt by the majority, their mere recognition by law would certainly not suffice. The Hungarian liberals, who have just given legal sanction to mixed marriages, have made a remarkable mistake which one of the earliest cases clearly illustrates. A baptized Jew marries a Jewess. At the same time, the struggle to obtain the present form of marriage accentuated distinctions between Jews and Christians, thus hindering rather than aiding the fusion of races. 
Those who really wish to see the Jews disappear through intermixture with other nations can only hope to see it come about in one way. The Jews must previously acquire economic power sufficiently great to overcome all social prejudice against them. The aristocracy may serve as an example of this, for in its ranks occur the proportionally highest numbers of mixed marriages. The Jewish families which re-gild the old nobility with their coin gradually become absorbed. But what shape would this phenomenon take in the middle classes, where, the Jews being a bourgeois people, the Jewish question is of far more consequence? A previous acquisition of power would be synonymous with that economic supremacy which Jews are already erroneously declared to possess. And if the power they now possess creates rage and indignation among the anti-Semites, what outbreaks would not an increase of power create? Hence the first step towards absorption will never be taken because this step would involve the subjection of the majority to a heretofore scorned minority, possessing neither military nor administrative force of its own. I think, therefore, that the absorption of Jews by means of their prosperity is unlikely to occur. In countries which are now anti-Semitic, my view will be approved. In countries where Jews are now tolerated, it will probably be violently disputed. My happier co-religionists will not believe me till Jew-baiting teaches them the truth. For the longer anti-Semitism lies in abeyance, the more fiercely will it break out. The infiltration of immigrating Jews, attracted to a land by apparent security, and the ascent in the social scale of rising Jews, combine powerfully to bring about a revolution. Nothing is plainer than this rational conclusion. Because I have drawn this conclusion with complete indifference to everything but the quest of truth, I shall probably be contradicted and opposed by Jews who are in easy circumstances. In so far as private interests alone are held by their anxious possessors to be in danger, they can safely be ignored for the concerns of the poor and oppressed are of greater importance than theirs. But I wish, from the outset, to prevent any misconception from arising, particularly the mistaken notion that my project, if realised, would in the least degree injure property now held by Jews. I therefore explain everything connected with rights of property very fully. Whereas, if my plan never becomes anything more than a piece of literature, things will merely remain as they were. It might more reasonably be objected that I am giving a handle to anti-Semitism when I say we are a people, one people, that I am hindering the assimilation of Jews where it is about to be consummated, and endangering it where it is an accomplished fact insofar as it is possible for a solitary writer to hinder or endanger anything. This objection will be especially brought forward in France. It will probably also be made in other countries, but I shall answer only the French Jews beforehand,
because these afford the most striking example of my point. However much I may worship individuality, powerful personal individuality in statesmen, inventors, artists, philosophers or commanders, as well as co-joint individuality in a historic group of human beings which we call a nation, however much I may worship individuality, I do not regret its disappearance. Whatever is unfit to survive can, will, and must be destroyed. But the distinctive nationality of Jews neither can, will, nor must be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed because external enemies consolidate it. Footnote. Answering Major Evans Gordon before the British Royal Commission on Alien Immigration in August 1902, Dr. Herzl said, I will give you my definition of a nation, and you can add the adjective Jewish. A nation is, in my mind, a historical group of men of a recognized cohesion held together by a common enemy. That is, in my view, a nation. Then if you add to that the word Jewish, you have what I understand to be the Jewish nation. End of footnote. It will not be destroyed. This it has shown during two thousand years of appalling suffering. It must not be destroyed, and that as successor to numberless Jews who refused to despair, and that I am trying once more to prove in this pamphlet. Whole branches of Judaism may wither and fall, but the trunk remains. Hence, if any or all of the French Jews protest against this scheme on account of their own assimilation, my answer is simple. The whole thing does not concern them at all. They are Jewish Frenchmen, well and good. This is a private affair for the Jews alone. The movement toward the organization of the state I am proposing would, of course, harm Jewish Frenchmen no more than it would harm the assimilated of other countries. It would, on the contrary, be distinctly to their advantage, for they would no longer be disturbed in their chromatic function, as Darwin puts it, but would be able to assimilate in peace, because anti-Semitism, now active, would have been stopped for ever. They would certainly be credited with being assimilated to the very depths of their souls, if they stayed where they were after the Jewish state, with its superior organization, had become a reality. The assimilated would profit even more than Christian citizens by the departure of faithful Jews, for they would be rid of the disquieting, incalculable, and unavoidable rivalry of a Jewish proletariat, driven by poverty and political pressure from place to place, from land to land. This floating proletariat would become stationary. Many Christian citizens, whom we call anti-Semites, can now offer determined resistance to the immigration of foreign Jews. Jewish citizens cannot do this, although it affects them far more nearly. For on them tells, first of all, the keen competition of individuals carrying on similar branches of industry, who, in addition, either introduce anti-Semitism where it does not exist, or intensify it where it does. 
The assimilated give expression to this secret grievance in philanthropic undertakings. They found emigration societies for wandering Jews. There is a reverse to the picture, which were comic if it did not deal with human beings. For these charitable organizations are created not for, but against, persecuted Jews, are created to dispatch these poor creatures just as fast and far as possible. And thus many an apparent friend of the Jews turns out, on careful inspection, to be nothing more than an anti-Semite of Jewish origin, disguised in the garb of a philanthropist. But the attempts at colonization, made even by really benevolent men, interesting attempts though they were, have so far been unsuccessful. I do not think that one man or another took up the matter merely as an amusement. That they allowed poor Jews to migrate as a herd of cattle might have been let go. The matter was too grave and tragic for such treatment. These attempts were interesting in that they represented on a small scale the practical forerunners of the idea of a Jewish state. They were useful in that out of their mistakes may be gathered experience for carrying them out successfully on a larger scale. They have, of course, done harm also. The transportation of anti-Semitism to new districts, which is the inevitable consequence of such artificial infiltration, seems to me to be the least of these evils. Far worse is the circumstance that unsatisfactory results tend to cast doubts on the efficiency of Jewish labour. But the following simple argument will remove this doubt from the minds of intelligent men. What is inefficacious and impossible to accomplish on a small scale need not necessarily be so on a larger one. A small enterprise may result in loss under the same conditions which would make a large one pay. A rivulet cannot be navigated by boats. The river into which it flows carries fine iron vessels. No human being is wealthy or powerful enough to transplant a nation from one habitation to another. An idea alone can compass that, and this idea of a state may have the requisite power to do so. The Jews have dreamt this kingly dream all through the long nights of their history. Next year in Jerusalem is their old phrase. Now comes the opportunity to prove that dream may be converted into a living reality. For this many old, outgrown, confused and limited notions must first be erased entirely from the minds of men. Dull brains might, for instance, imagine that this exodus would be from civilized regions into the desert. That is not the case. It will be carried out in the midst of civilization. We shall not revert to a lower stage. We shall rise to a higher one. We shall not dwell in mud huts. We shall build newer and more beautiful houses and possess them in safety. We shall not lose our acquired possessions. We shall realize them. We shall surrender our well-earned rights only for greater privileges. We shall not sacrifice our beloved customs. We shall find them again. 
We shall not leave our old home before the new is prepared for us. Those only will depart who are sure thereby to improve their position. Those who are now desperate will go first. After them the poor. Next the prosperous, and last of all the opulent. The precursors will raise themselves to a higher grade equal to that class whose representatives will shortly follow. Thus the exodus will be at the same time an ascent of the classes. The departure of the Jews will involve no economic disturbances, no crises, no persecutions. In fact, the countries they abandon will revive to a new period of prosperity. There will be an inner migration of Christian citizens into the positions evacuated by Jews. The outgoing current will be gradual and continuous, and its initial movement will put an end to anti-Semitism. The Jews will leave as honoured friends, and if some of them return, they will receive the same favourable welcome and treatment at the hands of civilised nations as is accorded all foreign visitors. Their exodus will have no resemblance to a flight, for it will be a well-regulated expedition under control of public opinion. The movement will not only be inaugurated with absolute conformity to law, but it cannot even be carried out without the friendly intervention of interested governments, who would derive considerable benefits from it. Security for the integrity of the idea and the vigour of its execution will be found in the creation of a body corporate, or corporation. This corporation will be called the Society of Jews. In addition to it there will be a Jewish company, a self-supporting, paying body. An individual who attempted to undertake this task alone might be either an impostor or a madman. The personal characters of the members of the corporation will guarantee its integrity, and the business capital of the company will prove its stability. These prefactory remarks are merely intended as a hasty reply to the crowd of objections which the very words Jewish state are certain to arouse. Henceforth we shall proceed more slowly to meet further objections, and to explain in detail what has been as yet only indicated. We shall try in the interests of this pamphlet to avoid making it a dull exposition. Short aphoristic chapters will therefore best answer the purpose. If I wish to substitute a new building for an old one, I must demolish before I construct. I shall therefore keep to this natural sequence. In the first and general part I shall explain my ideas, remove all prejudices, determine essential political and economic conditions, and develop the plan. In the second part, which is divided into three principal sections, I shall describe its execution. These three sections are the Jewish Company, Local Groups, and the Society of Jews. The Society is to be created first, the Company last. But in this account the reverse order is preferable, because it is the financial soundness of the enterprise which will chiefly be called into question, and doubts upon this score must be removed first. 
In the conclusion, I shall try to meet every further objection that could possibly be made. My Jewish readers will, I hope, follow me patiently to the end. Some will naturally make their objections in an order of succession other than that chosen for their refutation. But whoever sees his doubt set aside ought to give in his allegiance to the cause. Although I speak of reason, I am fully aware that reasons alone will not suffice. Old prisoners do not willingly leave the cell, and we shall see whether the young, whom we need, have grown up to us, whether the young, who irresistibly draw on the old, will transform rational motives into enthusiasm. End of Introduction